Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, welcome, Journey Church. Uh, If we haven't met before, my name is Tyler. I'm privileged to be one of the pastors here and to open the Word of God with you. Uh, We will be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, so if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, if you open to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, that is where we'll begin. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, that's totally fine. Stick around. We'll get you pretty familiar with it. Uh, If you're just wondering for today, though, there's a table of contents at the beginning of most Bibles, which will help you navigate to Matthew or the Gospel according to Matthew. It's going to be about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. And again, you're looking for chapter 5, big number 5 on the page, verse 38. Uh, if, by the way, if words are easier for you, most English Bibles have the word retaliation associated with this passage. So, we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most famous sermons ever preached, potentially the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, and I was reminded of that this week as I prepared my sermon and came across phrases like, to turn the other cheek, or to go the extra mile. Phrases which have become so common in English usage that they've entered the parlance of even those who do not follow or believe in the Gospels, which is pretty amazing. It tells us how much our culture is actually shaped by biblical norms and values. But at the same time, that shaping doesn't matter if it's merely just something literary. And we here at The Journey study the Bible not for its literary and cultural significance primarily, but we study the Bible because we believe it to be the actual Word of God. And that we believe when our Bibles are open and our hearts are submitted, that the Holy Spirit works in us to change and to form us as these words come off the page and into our lives. So, we are studying the Sermon on the Mount Uh, which is Matthew 5 through 7, and this week we are looking at the concept of retaliation. Uh, I, as I started to think about this passage, uh, I got a little bit anxious, and you might understand why. Uh, As Kenyon prayed this morning, one of the things that we hope happens is that people look at us, look at members of the Journey Church, look at members of evangelical churches across the country, and they wonder, as Kenyon asked, what is different about them? And the fundamental thing that we think is the answer to that question is that we are citizens of no mere earthly kingdom. In effect, if you were to ask, what is a Christian? One of the ways in which you can answer that question is you can say, a Christian is someone who says, my highest allegiance is to Jesus Christ and no other man, no other magistrate, or no other national power. I, am, I follow Christ first and foremost, which is why one of the earliest confessions of the Christian faith was this simple phrase, Jesus is Lord. When that was uttered by Christians following Jesus in the Roman Empire, what was implied by it is if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. Which for us today does not mean I am a Christian so much the worse for America, for Arizona, for Tucson. It doesn't mean we jettison the national, the state, or the small municipality in which God has placed us. But rather it means this. That I am a citizen best, or I am an American best, when I am a Christian first. And it's important that we understand that, that we are citizens of our earthly home best when we are first citizens of our heavenly home. 
The reason why I want to start there is because this passage, I believe, challenges the very way we order and structure the loves of our heart. Let me give you an example. Uh, In order to be a good husband, in order to be the best husband I can be, I must unashamedly and unapologetically love my God more than I love my wife. And in order to be a good father, I must unashamedly and unapologetically love my wife more and differently than I love my children. And if you think about this, it actually makes pretty reasonable sense. It's a little bit hard on the ears, but it makes sense. You think about it. Uh, one day, your kids will leave the house. You know, and this is actually defined uh, or divined by God in Genesis 2, 24 through 25. It says, Therefore a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were unashamed. That's at the very beginning of Scripture, and Jesus reaffirms that later in the New Testament. Which, if the foundation of every good marriage is fundamentally a foundation of friendship, and friendship requires my presence, my attention, my time, and my energy, what happens to a marriage, even a good marriage, when that is all jettisoned for 18 to whoever knows how long it takes for kids to move out of the house these days, but for 18-ish years? Very few friendships can survive such things. And so... In order, to be a good hu- or in order to be a good father, you must first and foremost decide to show your children what it looks like to be a good husband or wife by posturing yourself towards your wife both differently and in terms of ordering your loves ahead of your kids. Similarly, in order to be a good husband, I must love my God first. If I love my wife first, one of the things that will end up inevitably happening is I will commit the grave sin of idolatry. I will turn my wife into a lowercase g God, and I will begin to place all of my hopes, all of my expectations, all of my desires, the entire flourishing of my life, I will place upon her shoulders. And guess what? My wife, as amazing and beautiful and lovely as she is, as I'm sure all of you agree with me, she was not made by God to bear that weight. You know, the phrase in Greek, doxa, which is where we get our English word glory, so when you see glory in the scriptures in the New Testament, it's the Greek word doxa, it actually means weight. It is the concept that when we glorify something, when we worship something, we are actually placing a metaphysical burden on that thing. And so the only thing that we can worship is the only thing in the entire cosmos which can bear that burden, and that is God. If I place that burden on my wife, inevitably it will crush her because she was not made to bear it, or she will rightly take it off of her shoulders and put it back on mine, and it will crush me. And that can look a lot of different ways. I think one way it can look is that it is hard to repent to somebody. It is hard to be honest about your own failings when you believe how that person sees you is fundamentally an act of worship for you. And so, we want to start this morning thinking about rightly ordering our loves from God to our spouses, to our kids, to our community, to our friends, to our neighbors, and even to our enemies. Because I think this text challenges the very heart of how we do that. And so, we need to remember that we are citizens of our earthly homes best 
when we are citizens of our heavenly home first. I'm a better American when I am first a Christian. I'm a better American when my Bible is open and I am on my knees before any sort of political punditry or civil conversations start echoing in my home. I'm a better American when my church family takes preference over my political party. I am a better American, and we will see this in the text, when my rights as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven supersede my rights as a citizen of America. Each of these is a way of saying that I believe the proper ordering of our loves places our permanent home with God ahead of our temporal home here on earth. Why is that? Because Jesus is Lord. Amen, church? There we go. Good Baptists, all of you. The reason well, yeah, you laugh, but a Presbyterian wouldn't have gotten that. I bet Greg was silent over there. Thanks for reading this morning, Greg. You did a great job. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to start there as well is because if you notice, like I said, this text generally is associated with the phrase retaliation. This date is also September 11th, which means we need to clear the deck right away, lest the mere association of that phrase and this date totally jettison what God would have to say for us. Because I will tell you this right now, this text has nothing to do with military powers, national governments, or police forces. And if we get too wrapped up in that, and I wait too long to dismiss that concern in your minds, we might totally miss it. So it's important to say that right up front. This text is directed at individual citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not at governments. Governments, according to Romans 13, verse 4, have been given the authority and responsibility to wield the sword of internal justice and external war by appropriate means and at appropriate times. So this passage should not, as some of my Christian pacifist friends do, it should not critique our various police forces of the United States of America or any branch of the United States military. As I said, when I prepared this passage, when I was preparing the sermon, I felt sort of an inverted bell curve of anxiety. Uh, I started off high, noticing the date I was going to preach on and the topic I was going to preach about. Then I started to realize, oh, this isn't actually about that. We're okay. And then, at one point, I realized what the text was actually about, and my anxiety started to rise, because I realized I had a much more difficult task in front of me. It wasn't talking about retaliation on the inauspicious date of September 11th. Rather, it was talking to mostly Americans about their rights their rights as American citizens, and their rights as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You know, if you've paid attention to politics over the last couple of years, it seems that every political discourse gets uh, sidetracked into the realm of whose rights supersede whose rights. This is my right. Well, that's your right. And everybody fights, and these rights appear to be mutually exclusive to the point where we can make no progress as a community. I think this text actually shows us how we as Christians should engage in such times. And so we'll see that in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, but if you would pray with me as we unpack this text. Father in heaven, we are grateful for our nation and for the freedoms we experience. Father, I believe there is no counter-argument against the rightly lived Christian life. So help us understand this text so that we may live more coherently and wholeheartedly for you before the watching world. Amen. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone would force you to go one mile with him, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There's obviously some things right out the gate that we need to get some clarity on. This text begins, as we have gotten used to over the past four weeks, with the common beat and principle, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, into which Jesus speaks a quote from the Old Testament. In fact, a quote that shows up three times in the Old Testament, in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And in each of the chapters it shows up in, this text is set out as a standard for justice. You know, when I was in third grade, uh, I had a teacher who had on the wall, I can still uh, visualize it, a poster that said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth makes the whole world blind. I remember as a third grader thinking that's rather silly. We have two eyes after all. If you poke out my eye and I in return poke out your eye, we're only half blind, maybe colorblind. I am actually not sure how that works. Somebody ask a doctor. Uh, but we, are, we have two eyes, so we're not fully blind. That's why I thought it was silly in third grade. I now actually think the text is also silly, but for slightly different reasons. The quote was attributed to Gandhi, and uh, so much the better for him that it is one of those quotes that you can't trace back to its actual source, so we don't know if Gandhi actually said it, which, like I said, I think is better for Gandhi, because I think that quote totally misunderstands what is going on in the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The assumption the quote makes is that we would exact vigilante justice upon each other. And if somebody wronged me and I wronged them back in return, if I retaliated, if I poked out your eye so you poked out my eye, I knocked out some of your teeth so you knocked out some of my teeth, we would end up in an ongoing, never-ending blood feud, Montesquieu and Capulet style. But this text is actually challenging that very notion. And this is what Jesus is addressing as well. I mean, humans are bad at judging justice, at judging right and wrongs. Because we're bad at it, we need to set limits on it. We need to set limits when it comes to our personal offense and harm. And so societies dating all the way back to Babylon determined that this concept, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, established a pretty good form of justice prior to uh, what we would think of as police forces which can adjudicate the law. You see, this text, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, sets up the standard that fair is fair and no farther can you go. It placed limits on the human urge to seek vengeance. Now, by Jesus' day, this was not merely a Babylonian law. It was not merely a Jewish law. It had actually been adopted as well by the Roman law. And in Roman law, it was titled Lex Talionis, or Jus Talionis, which roughly translated from the Latin means either the law of retaliation or justice of the same kind. And that's the concept, is that when somebody did something wrong to you, there was the right to exact from a civil magistrate the same kind of justice, the equal proportionate amount of wrong. And what this did then is it capped the limits of it, and it bordered the edge of when a conflict ended. You knew when the conflict ended because if you hurt somebody else, if then the judge required them to respond in the same kind, the conflict was over. 
which actually preserves peace. It doesn't merely limit violence, which is very, very important. I, I actually make this argument uh, to a certain extent to anybody who I do premarital counseling with. I tell them it's very important in order to preserve peace in your home to create a ritual between man and wife that establishes the end of an argument. My wife and I, when we were dating, uh, which we dated for about six years, so we dated for kind of a long time before we got married because we started dating when we were 16, uh, whenever we would have an argument, which was frequent because we were 16, uh, we, we went to this Chinese food place uh, in Scotts Valley, California, where I grew up. And uh, we would sit down at the Chinese food place, and it would be kind of tense. We had just had an argument, and we would eat and comp slowly over the course of the meal. Conversation would become easier. You could actually feel the physiology of your body kind of calming down, cooling off a little bit. The temperature was lowering. And by the time we left the restaurant, we knew the argument's over. It's okay to joke around. It's okay to be flirtatious with each other again. Otherwise, you know, you get into that point where it's like you think something's really funny, but you're not sure if your wife or husband is okay with joking yet, and so you kind of throw it out there, and then you're like, oh, too soon, and you have to reel it back, and now it's another week until everything's okay. It's important to mark the boundaries of when a conflict begins and ends. When we know when it ends, peace can be restored. And so, in a sense, that's what the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was doing. It was restoring peace. Now, if we look at this passage just at face value, it can seem, though, like Jesus is throwing out the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, the eye for an eye. He's throwing that out, and he's saying the same thing as Gandhi. But I don't think he is. And in order to see that, we have to pay pretty close attention to the text. You see, Gandhi threw it out, uh, saying that that led to the entire world being blind, Jesus moderates it by saying, do not resist the one who is evil. Again, that can seem directionally like Jesus is headed to the same place. But take note of the four examples Jesus gives as why this is an issue. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone sues you and take your tunic, give to him your cloak as well. If anyone would force you to go one mile with him, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We're going to unpack each of these, but I want to make two observations that's true about all four of them right off the bat. Uh, the two observations are this. One, because these four examples are prefaced with the phrase, do not resist the one who is evil, you can assume in the metaphor that Jesus is using, since it's directed at you, it is an unjust action. Somebody strikes you unprovoked. Somebody sues you unjustly on false pretenses. Somebody forces you to walk a mile with them when that shouldn't be something they're able to do. So we have to assume, based off of how Jesus prefaces these four examples, that evil, injustice, is at the heart of them. The second thing I want you to notice is that the goal of each of these is actually to trigger a question in the depths of our hearts so that we can figure out how it is that we, are ought, that we ought to respond. So let's look at these examples. If anyone slaps you, like I said, an unprovoked attack, maybe it's out of malice, maybe it's out of sheer frustration. Twice a year I travel to Louisville, Kentucky, 
And every time I'm in the airport, I see somebody on the verge of violence because of something they have encountered in their travels. It's a high-stress situation. Somebody's lost their bag or their flight already left because it was got delayed. And they're shouting at somebody, and I immediately think, look around and see if there's a security guard who's paid to deal with this. Uh, it's a high-stress situation. So it could be something as much as malice, this person struck you because they don't like you, or it could be something as easy as they are frustrated, they're in a sort of tense situation, something's going on, but whatever it is, it led them to strike you unprovoked. And you have the legal right in this scenario as an inhabitant of your town to strike back. You have the legal right to do that. But Jesus has you pause before you exercise this right. Jesus has, in effect, you ask the question, why would I need to respond to him? What good can come of this? What is the character of Christ that I would be displaying in doing so? 1 Peter 3, which Jim taught on around this time last year, actually helps us unpack some of what is taking place here. In 1 Peter 3, 8, Peter writes, a, uh, Peter, writing to a church, by the way, about to endure persecution, says the following, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy and brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. I do not believe that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is denying the principle of lex talionis, denying the principle of an eye for an eye. It seems to me, rather, that he is saying... Though you have the right as a citizen of earth to strike back, you also have the right of a, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven to highlight the wrong and injustice done and to highlight the grace and peace of your character and the character of your God by not striking. In effect, Jesus is establishing two forms of rights which are actually not in contradiction, but they are directionally different. He says, you do have the right to strike, but you also have the right not to. You are not obligated to swing your right hand as an insult to theirs. If anyone sues you, again, the context, an unlawful lawsuit, it, presumably the truth has either been revealed in the course of the administration of justice or sometime later. And by the way, he's suing you and he's taking your tunic. That's your shirt. So he's got your shirt. And now you're with him in court. And it comes out that this is all unfair. This is all unjust. And you then win the right in front of the court of law to exact the, uh, the same from him. So he has to give you back your shirt, but also his shirt as well. And Jesus says, in that circumstance, why don't you think about giving him not just your shirt, but your cloak, your jacket as well. Culturally speaking, by the way, that term, uh, the cloak, the jacket, is a more expensive uh, garment, it's a more expensive item, and it's more multi-use. That would have been likely used by most of Jesus' hearers, not just as an external jacket to wear when it was cold, but also the blanket which they would have slept on. And it's unlikely that anybody in Jesus' audience would have owned more than two of them. And he says, surrender that as well. This paints a picture for us which would shock and offend the conscience. You're in court and you have just seen this person who is wrongfully accused of something, adjudicated wrongly, and then 
all of a sudden justice comes in, evidence is found, justice is done, and they are set free. They have the right to take the tunic, but Jesus, in a sense, paints a picture of us of a man taking off his only other garment and saying, if you were willing to go to unjust means in order to find material or financial gain, you clearly need this more than I do. And laying down the garment at his feet. Again, that would have been shocking and offensive. Not merely because the man would then likely be standing there completely naked in court, but because the amount of injustice done and yet the grace shown would have shocked the consciences of those watching. Jewish custom actually forbade people from being able to sue to take somebody's cloak, to take that outer jacket. In a sense, a version of social welfare and caring for the poor was to make sure, even if that person declared bankruptcy, he still had that garment. He could still stay warm at night and covered during the day, protecting him or her from the elements. And so the, the uh, free surrendering of it challenges Jesus' hearers. D.A. Carson helps us with some insight here. He says, by Jesus' day... It became all too easy to see the law as prescriptive and only marginally restrictive. The question then became, in most people's hearts, you could add, how far may my personal retaliation extend without breaking the law? Worse, the law was thus being dragged into the personal arena where it would scarcely foster even rough justice, but only bitterness, vengeance, malice, and hatred. What Carson is saying there is that the law was not intended to be brought into personal relationships, but it was no longer being used as a way in order to understand the range of options and then to choose what the offended party thought was the most uh, gracious and God-honoring option. Rather, it became, the it became the limit at which somebody with a wicked heart would think, what, as they rub their hands together maniacally, what am I able to do? What am I able to extract from this person? How can can I get my own justice and vengeance? And so being removed from the courts, it was being exercised within personal relationships. Jesus is looking at this law and how people treated it, and he is not saying, that's over, that's done with, you don't need to worry about that. And we know that because as our friend Kyle preached five weeks ago, when Jesus showed up, he said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, not a jot or a tittle, an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And all has not yet been accomplished at this point. So, he must not be getting rid of the law. There must be some nuance that helps us understand the context. I think he's saying, looking at the law and saying, you are missing the spirit of the law. And your hearts are therefore dying from a thousand bloody paper cuts. As you seek to leverage the law for your own gain rather than for God's glory. So Jesus, as he is wont to do, takes this law and he drills it straight into our hearts. To say, here is what God means. Paul, by the way, draws out some implications for this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11. He writes, When one of you has a grievance against another, 
does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That means, does he dare go to Roman judges and lawyers before he goes before the body of Christ? And listen to his rationale. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try such trivial cases? If somebody in church is offended by each other, he says, you guys at the end of all things will judge the world. I really hope you can figure out whatever trivial, petty thing is happening between you. He goes on. How much more than matters pertaining, oh, do you not know that you will judge the angels? How much more than matters pertaining to life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why do you put your disagreements between people who are not filled with the Holy Spirit, who cannot adjudicate cases before God's people? Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute? Do you hear the broken heart of Paul as he's dealing with this church, this wayward church here? That no one is a, uh, wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to the law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have a lawsuit at all with one another is already defeat for you. If people in the church are fighting, it's already got a black eye. The bride of Christ is already wounded. That's what he's saying there. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul does not contest the legitimacy of Roman law. Rather, he elevates the sanctity and importance of the church as our bond. We are unified as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he elevates that without denigrating the earthly law of the Roman centurions. And notice as well that he does not mean this to be a get-out-of-jail-free card. The reason why I read that last section where he talks about being sanctified and justified is because if we then look at this and we go, no, 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 I know I offended you, but you have to forgive me. You see what the Bible says? Then we have already missed the point. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for us when we offend somebody else. Rather, that this text tells us we are supposed to come back to one another again and again in repentance and forgiveness and love. We are to seek justice with each other, not merely get off on the wrongs that we have done because we can leverage the grace of Christ. That is nothing but cheap grace. Cheap grace that is so cheap, it no longer bears the weight of being able to tell us we are saved. We have been washed and renewed. And so those of us who are in and bound for the kingdom of God are not the sort of people who leverage the law for our own gain or bear petty grudges with one another. But we strive to have a predisposition to repent and to forgive, to show grace and to show kindness. 
The next example, if anyone forces you to go a mile. This is a reference not to Jewish law, but Roman law. You see, the Roman Empire was so large, it required, in order to keep the peace, roaming military bands. So really, they're kind of the first police officers in the world. And because they were traveling such long distances and on foot, it was Roman law that they could conscript somebody from one of their provinces to carry their heavy military gear with them while they went from one barrack to the other barrack. But the Romans, by God's common grace, were wise enough to put a limit on that. And so they picked, as the Romans always do, a nice round number, and they said, 1,000 paces you can force this person to carry your bag and no more. And Jesus says... Why don't you carry it another thousand? And in order to gather the weight of that, you need to understand how Jesus' hearers would have said this, or heard this. They're gathering on a mountain, believing him to be the Messiah, the Jewish king come to liberate God's people from from their earthly oppressors. That's who they believe Jesus to be. And in the midst of that, They see the Romans not merely as a police force, but as an occupying enemy army. They are your imperial overlords. You do what they say at the point of a sword, and that's why they do it. And guess what? They make you pay for it. That's what the taxes and tax collectors are in the New Testament. That's why they're seen as so evil, because they are people who turned on their own people, deconstructing their Jewish faith, and extracted taxes from them in order to fund the military machine of the Roman Empire. And so your perspective Messiah stands on a hill and says, when they come to you and at sword point, they say, walk with me 1,000 paces and carry this heavy bag. Here's what you do. And he doesn't say, you knock it out of his hand and you take the point of the spear. He doesn't say, you neglect it. He doesn't say, you drop it at one mile and you spit in the guy's face. He says, what if you walk with him too? Which, by the way, just if you're tracking here, that's that's two miles out, two miles back, a four-mile round trip. I don't know how long it takes you to walk, but I'm kind of a stroller. That would take me all day. This is no mere burden Jesus is placing on them. Do you get the feel for these sayings? That these are all kind of record scratch, the music stops moments. What did Jesus say? When he doesn't reaffirm the laws they would expect him to, when he doesn't tell you to countersue as you're right, when he doesn't tell you to resist your Roman imperial overlords. But notice, neither does he say what they're doing is totally fine. Jesus calls it what it is. This, dear friends, is evil is what Jesus says. He acknowledges the evil, but he also acknowledges the the Roman law. And in place of our resistance, he advocates shocking obedience. You might have heard of civil disobedience, like Martin Luther King marching in Birmingham. He was told not to. It was an unjust law to try and keep civil rights movement down, and yet he marched anyway, and he peacefully accepted the cuffs of an unjust system and went to jail as a peaceful civil obedience. Well, Jesus is here articulating and advocating for a similar heart disposition, but directionally different tactic. He says, rather than civil obedience, you ex- or rather than civil disobedience, you exercise shocking civil obedience. A civil obedience, which, by the way, as they walked a thousand paces and started to get into 1,001 and 1,002 and 1,500, they would have started to get increasingly concerned because it now looks like the Roman centurion is the one breaking the law. 
you're walking with him an extra mile. Who in their right mind would do that? You must be being forced to. So the Roman centurion is starting to feel all this anxiety about what if somebody asks, I hope this Jewish guy really does let me off the hook and explain the situation. But one of the other things that takes place, by the way, is if you walk an extra mile with somebody who doesn't deserve it but can force somebody else, you know what happens? In the paces between 1001 and 2000, that Roman centurion is not conscripting one of your brothers and sisters in order to walk with him as well. What Jesus is advocating here is not merely love for your enemy, the Roman centurion, but also love for your community, love for your neighbor, love for your brother and sister by, con by preventing the conscription of them into an unjust system. Let's not miss this. In each of these cases, the inhabitants of the Roman Empire had the earthly right to resist at a certain point. They were allowed to, and Jesus does not remove that right. Rather, in each case, Jesus advocates allowing your rights as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven to supersede your earthly rights. But what about this next one? If you were to play a game of which of these is not like the other, the fourth one is the one that stands out, right? Give to the one who begs and do not refuse the one who would borrow. It's legitimate to be confused about this. And to tell you the truth, though I think I understand why it's here, I haven't developed a particularly clean way to communicate why Jesus attaches this to the other three. So here's what I'm going to do instead. Instead of explaining why this is here, I'm going to explain to you what I think is happening in this text. What I think draws out the aspect that provokes our sense of justice. This phrase here is both unqualified and undefined. What do I mean by that? Jesus says, give, and it's actually a command. It's in the imperative tense, give. You can't disobey it. To disobey the command to give is to disobey Jesus Christ's words. That's what I mean by unqualified. It is a command which you cannot get out of. No excuse will get you out of it. You're, you're dead to rights here. But it's also undefined. Jesus does not tell you what to give. Let me give you an example of what I think this means, what I'm trying to get at here from Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, uh, walking to the temple, Peter and John see a beggar who is lame. He can't walk. His legs don't work. He's paralyzed. Here's what Acts chapter 3, verses 3 through 6 record. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. The text goes on to record how the man stands up and his legs, by the power of Jesus Christ, have been healed. Which I know you're all thinking, well, yeah, that makes sense. He would be totally happy with that. That's why I get out of giving because, you know, all of a sudden I can make somebody walk. But what if it's that guy on the corner over down by Tanca Verde who's just walking along with his dog and the cardboard sign? What do I do then? Here's the thing. Again, it is unqualified but is also undefined. And as uh, Kenyon mentioned when he started his prayer, 
what we are doing when we pray is we are talking to the very God of the universe, the very one who, in whose name Peter is able to make this man walk. Here's what I am saying for you. Christian, you always have something to give. You may not be able to meet a financial need, but you can speak to the Father and Creator of the entire cosmos on behalf of somebody. You may not be able to solve whatever their problem is right now, but what you can do is you can look them in the eye and dignify them as a person. Have you thought about how over the past two years, people have experienced immense loneliness and separation from their community as everything we did, whether you were a student or whether you had a job, uh, you did everything mediated through a piece of glass, separated from all but your closest family. Have you thought about how that would feel for somebody walking on the streets of Tucson, where they don't have the built-in social network that could buoy them up in hard times? Because true friendship and true community always doubles our joys, increasing what we feel in terms of joy, but also it cuts in half the sorrows and hardships we experience because we can share them with others. Oftentimes, when you are lacking that, simple eye contact and a meaningful conversation is enough to give somebody. It dignifies them as a human being. Dignifies them as being made in the very image of God. Let me summarize what I have said thus far. Here's our bottom line. The default settings of the kingdom heart are not to repay evil for evil, not to insist upon our own rights, and to serve others with countercultural readiness and joy. To not repay evil with evil, to not insist upon our own rights, and to serve others with countercultural readiness and joy. And while I want to let that settle, I think some of us, if you are like me, you encounter a phrase like that and you immediately think, when can I deviate from that? When am I allowed to get out of that particular circumstance or situation? When? Because I can think of particular situations which I have been in where what you just said, Pastor Tyler, does not fit. Where I could not have responded how you said. I think it's important, though, as we think about deviating from the default settings, which that's why they're defaults. You can change the default settings, but if we're going to think about deviating from them, we have to think about them in the proper way, which means we can't think about changing from our default settings as kingdom citizens by thinking about how can I avoid or get around or find a loophole with what Jesus said. In uh, the 1940s, there was a German pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor and a resistor of the Nazi movement during World War II. He would be executed in a Nazi internment camp, but uh, he, when he was thinking about the Lutheran church, he criticized the Lutheran church in Germany for being complexly apostate rather than being simply obedient. Here's what he said. Anywhere else in the world where commands are given, the situation is clear. I love this example. He says, a father says to his child, go to bed. And the child knows exactly what to do. But if you have been immersed and enculturated in the sort of, as he calls it, pseudo-theology of complex apostasy rather than simple obedience, here's what the analogy says. 
The child knows exactly what to do, but a child drilled in the pseudo-theology would have, would have to argue this way. Father says go to bed. He means you are tired. He doesn't want me to be tired. But I can also overcome tiredness by going to play. So although father said go to bed, what he really means is go play. You laugh, and I do too, because we all know we have had basically that conversation with our kids. That, that sense of I can rationalize and I can reason my way into getting what I want rather than what I was told. That's from the book Discipleship, by the way, or Cost of Discipleship. This is nothing but deliberate or disobedience, the deliberate avoidance of obeying Jesus' simple command. If that's the game we're going to play, then by the way, we just might as well close the doors and all go do something else with our Sunday mornings. Football season is starting back up. I'm sure you guys would rather be there if this is just play acting and performative nonsense. So we need to approach this text and these concepts when we think about when is it in certain circumstances that my actions don't fit in the default settings you gave me. When can I deviate? Here, friends... If you are honest about where your heart is, here is where deviation can happen. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let all that you do be done in love. That is the principle and the ethic of the Christian heart. We can deviate from the default settings on the basis and the basis alone of the law of love. Here's a few examples. John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples for if you, ha if you have love for one another. Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Colossians 3.14, above all of these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge, meaning the direction of your calling and your heart, should be this love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And 1 John 4.11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. The compass of Christian morality and ethics is and will always be love of Christ, love of neighbor, love of enemy. Here's what I mean by that. There are times when what we think is the default setting, when, when the obedience to the exact letter that Jesus lays out in the text that we just looked at, when it is not doing the job which Jesus intended it to. When our hearts are directed at love in a rightly ordered way, as we talked about in the beginning, we are truly living as kingdom people. In effect, then, deviating from the defaults by the law of love is not actually deviating from a kingdom heart. It's simply applying localized wisdom to a particular situation. The times, there are times when the default settings can be overridden, but it always has to be made in clear connection with the love of God, love of neighbor, love of enemy, and it will rarely, by the way, run in tandem with the love of ourselves. There are times when meeting somebody's needs hurts more than it helps. There are times when you must defend your own integrity and dignity in order to defend somebody else's. There are times when you must stand up for yourself in court before civil magistrates in order to protect a weaker, lesser uh, ability to engage in those things. 
There are times, there are times when you will be insulted, and it is important to stand up against bullying in order to protect others. But every time you do that, it must be directed out of love for others rather than love for yourself. And I warn you, the human heart is deceitful above all things. Just because you can find a group or a person to advocate for when you have been offended does not mean you're on the right track. We must be vigilant and cautious if we think we're going to deviate from the default settings. And I'm not sure how all of this lands on you. We have considered what Jesus said, what that means for us today. But I think it's important to conclude with why Jesus said it. Why is it that Jesus, or what is in the background when Jesus says to not repay evil for evil, to not insist upon our own rights, and to serve others with countercultural readiness and joy? Well, I think the background to that is the very shape and message of the gospel itself. Uh, we here at Journey Church have borrowed from Greg Gilbert to say that the gospel uh, is simplistly articulated through four concepts. God, man, Christ, response. Here's where I see the shape of this text in the shape of the gospel itself. God, he is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the one being who exists eternally as three distinct persons. He is omnipresent, which means everywhere. He is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. And he is omniscient, which means all-knowing. He is the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty. Man, we were created in the image of God, distinct from him, yet dignified by him. Our designated purpose is to live before him forever and ever in his presence, experiencing endless joy as we participate in endless worship. But by the deceit of a fallen angel and the immaturity of the human heart, we sinned, and by some mysterious way, sin is a hereditary trait. Thus, in every generation, in every fetal heart, sin is birthed again. And so we challenge this God. We stand before him as sinners by nature and by choice, rebelliously in his presence and in, and in the presence of his holiness. This means that we are the offending party. This means that God has us dead to rights by his own behalf, by his own judgment. He has the right to strike back. He has the right to pronounce judgment. He has the right to execute justice. Christ but God, two of the most beautiful words in the entire New Testament, but God, being rich in mercy, full of grace, sent his one and only son to take on human life, to live among us as one of us, depending not on his own power or authority as the son of God from eternity past, but being filled with the Holy Spirit as you, brother and sister Christian, are being filled with the Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus to resist all temptation all the way to their end so that he could die in our place and bear our sins on a Roman cross and transmit to us the goodness he accumulated from an eternity of past and an earthly life of obedience to God. And that goodness and that holiness and that righteousness is passed to us so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and we can be granted admission into the blessedness of the kingdom of God. And we can live out our created calling as worshipers of God. Friends, the gospel, this is the gospel. And in it, you can hear the rationale for Jesus' instructions. Why do you not repay evil for evil? Because when you were evil enemies of God, God repaid your sin with his grace, mercy, and kindness. Why do we not insist upon our own rights? Because Jesus Christ, though God incarnate, God's one and only Son, the inheritor and creator of all things, 
did not insist upon his own rights, but he endured abuse for our salvation. The prophet Isaiah says, by his stripes or wounds, we are healed. Why do we serve with countercultural joy and readiness? Because Jesus Christ put foot after bloody foot on, with a heavy cross on his back up a hill to Golgotha to be crucified. And what does Hebrews say? For the joy set before him. Christ hung on a cross, every breath getting harder for you because of the joy set before him when he would see his bride as we started this morning with our call to worship made ready and washed clean for him. Why do we, when we have the choice between our rights as American citizens and our rights as kingdom citizens of Jesus Christ, why when we weigh those in our hand might we, might we execute our kingdom rights, to not strike, to not insist, and to give. Why might we do that? Because that, friends, is what God did for us. In response, we now live as living sacrifices, surrendering our lives to him because they were never our own to begin with. He created them, he planned them, and he purchased them with his blood. So before him we live, seeking to love our God and Savior with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength repenting where we fall short of his standards so that we can be restored again and again to the proper place of worship. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, what is your only hope in life and in death? That you are not your own, but you belong to your, to your God and your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He, friends, is your living hope. Would you pray with me? And then we are going to sing a song worshiping and praising Jesus Christ, our living hope. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your providence where you have placed us today. We thank you for uh, how you work in and through governments by your common grace, leading them to justice and goodness. We pray uh, for the leaders of our country, of our state, and of our uh, area of the city of Tucson. Would you lead them towards justice? Would you lead them towards goodness? And Father, would you lead us in wisdom in grace and in kindness, to know when to insist upon our own rights out of love for our brothers and sisters, and even, yes, our enemies, and when to sacrifice them that we might insist upon the rights we have as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us, and we offer this song to you in praise. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.